Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. I'm going to say a lot of words. So before I say any, let me just tell you in a sentence what it is I really wanted you to take home. When the people of God lose sight of heaven, they lose earthly hope. We have got to recover in our minds the sight of heaven before we start rolling in the mud and slinging it around over the partisanship of where we are right now. Was anybody besides me a little depressed right after the debates? Am I alone? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we know where we're at. We are about to pass into some turbulent times in the most turbulent election since that of Abraham Lincoln. If you're not geared up, suited up, and ready, you are going to be tempted to be swept under, and at the very least, you are going to suffer from a lack of hope. And I must call you today as we look at Revelation chapter 1 and think about where we're going, to see something beyond the current conflict, to see all the way to the end. See, I've done a lot of flying. Last year I flew 130, 140,000 air miles, and I hate to fly. I'm only afraid every mile. <laughs> and here's what I can do. I, I, I believe I have a high respect for gravity. I believe that's what it is. And the point is that I don't think that it's unusual to feel scared when you're 35,000 feet, 35, feet above the earth in a tube. That's ludicrous. It sounds bad, and it is. But I do it because it's part of the job of international missions and what I do. And here's what I can share with you. The whole time you go through turbulence, you must keep your mind on where you're going. So I will call on you today, church, to keep your mind on where we're going, otherwise the turbulence will overtake you. Now, to, to set this up, let's do two things this morning, if we can. First, I want to set the expectations, or perhaps reset the expectations, if I can, for how this church and its leadership is going to deal with the disrupt, disruptive and designed by the enemy to be divisive election that we're going into. There's a spiritual quality that has nothing to do with the red or the blue team. There's something else going on here that's dividing people, even dividing believers, even causing us to say things about each other that Jesus would not tolerate. Now here's the truth. We have to manage our expectations. The second thing we need to do is we need to remember our real identity. Who we are is entirely dependent on whose we are. So we're going to talk a lot about identity, but first, let's manage some expectations. Let me start off by doing it this way. This afternoon, across the country, the second great Sunday ritual will commence. Right after church, we go to football. Now, if you're not mad at the NFL and still watching, you may find yourself watching three teams today. The first team will come on, they'll come on with, with a lot of color, they'll come on with their regalia, you know, and their colorful jerseys and their helmets, and they'll come charging out. That's the home team. And then 
in opposition to them, there'll be a second team. They'll come out there with their jerseys and, and all of their helmets, and they'll put on a little show, and they're going to oppose the home team. But already on the field is a third team. They don't come charging out. No one ever claps for them. They have no helmet, even though they're in a lot of danger. They're the team that wears the muted colors of black and white. They're the officials. Now, here's what I know about that team. They are vital to the game, aren't they? How many of you have seen a game where the officials made the difference in who won? They're not supposed to, but they can. Let, let me go a step further and say that they probably like one of those teams better than the other team. They all have preferences. And by the way, not for nothing, but in America today, your feedback matters. All you have to do is buy something, they'll send you an email and tell you that. But you have to remember, the guys wearing the black and white, they go out on the field, they're there for the whole game, but they are never supposed to, they're never allowed, they must never express a preference for either side. If they do, they will lose their authority. In fact, if they do, they will lose their place in the game. Now, in the coming weeks, there's going to be a series here about politics and the Christian, and I promise you that every person who speaks from this platform is going to pr privately possess deeply held convictions and stern beliefs about who they're going to vote for, and you're never going to hear what they are, and you shouldn't. Ladies and gentlemen, we serve neither the red nor the blue team from this pulpit, we serve the purple. We serve a king and a kingdom not of this world. And if you demand of your pastors to speak on behalf of a red or a blue team, you strip them of their black and white jersey. They become of no effect. They lose the right to speak in the general audience of the populace of the United States. And you don't want them to do that. Oh, by the way, those officials... They, uh, they were hired by the commissioner, whose uh, commissioner NFL is in New York City. And, and, and the ones who will stand here, they, they were brought on by a higher power as well. Th those officials, they use a book, a manual that was given to them, and they call the plays according to the manual, not according to who they prefer on the field. And so will the people that speak here on this subject in the coming weeks. They will open the manual of the Word of God and they will speak concerning moral and ethical issues and they will not be blunted in doing so, but they will not do so so that you can raise a banner for a candidate or they will lose their voice. If you try to make them don a red or a blue jersey, you will pull down the legitimate authority of this pulpit. So remember... They're here to speak the word of God in a very divisive time. They're going to try to navigate what's coming up, and it's going to be turbulent. Before we get into that, though, I mentioned identity, and I mentioned that who we are is indelibly linked to whose we are, and I think that's true. We do not speak of heaven here because we want to escape our responsibility to be good American citizens. I've lived outside the country for somewhere between a quarter and a third of my life, I've lived in the Middle East, and I want to tell you something. 
I never go to the ballot box to pull a lever or fill in a little tab so that I can make the winner. Listen to me. We do not vote so we can get someone to win. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will, Daniel says. I vote to be a good citizen. I do not vote for the outcome. Faithfulness is my job. Fruitfulness is his job. My task is to do the work. His is to bring in the finish. And whether or not I think I'm going to win, I'm going to do as though Jesus is in the ballot box and watching what my choices are. Regardless of whether I think they're going to win or lose, that's got nothing to do with it. I, I, I say that to you because I write to my senator and he never listens. They never write back and say, thanks, Randy, now that I've heard from you. Never. I get a form letter that says, you're not as smart as us. I don't write it to him to get him to change his position. I would love that, but that's not what happens. I write it to him so that I can say to Jesus, I did. That I was a responsible citizen, not that I was somehow in control. Ladies and gentlemen, if COVID has taught you anything, has it not taught you this? Control is an illusion. A microscopic virus shut down the world. What does that tell you about the powerful men and women that run the world? They don't. Before my dad died, he said, son, let me tell you something. At the end of life, it all comes down to plumbing. Only some of you get that. Here's the truth. You control very little in life. Very, very little. So in times like these, believers must be reminded that our permanent citizenship is not here. Ladies and gentlemen, I love my nation, but I don't believe I control its future. And what's more, America's destiny is not my destiny. My hope is not in her horses or her chariots or her parties or her pundits. The truth of the matter is, I'm here on a temporary work permit from heaven. I don't live here forever. I've got a home. And I will, I, will, I will just want to take a moment before I get into the tussle of the political world of the here and now to remember there are great and precious promises, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, that give me hope when I'm going through turbulence. Now with that in mind, before we go into a series on the political kingdoms, I should remind you, there are some sermons that you open the Word of God and you learn the sermon so that you can go out and practice something. This isn't one of those. This is about remembering something. This is as simple and as tough as what to think about when the troubles come. Ladies and gentlemen, I would be false if I didn't tell you I believe we're about to face some real trouble. I think that what we've seen for the last six months ain't nothing over what we're going to see in the next. And I would worry, but my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And Jesus isn't running for anything. Jesus is not asking you to make him Messiah. He is. So here's the truth. I look into the word of God and I see, I was asked by your pastor to go to 50,000 feet. 
to go high up above and look down. I'd like you to take your Bible, if you have it, and go to Revelation chapter 1, because in that first chapter of Revelation, here's what I see. I see a verse in verse 19 that tells me about a guy who was standing in the presence of Jesus, who knew exactly where his citizenship was, and he wrote in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, these words. He wrote, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be after these things. Interesting phrase, meta talta, after the things which are. You know what John was told? Jesus, in his presence, said, John, I know you're in Patmos. I know you're in worship. I know you're stuck here on this rock under arrest. I'd like to reveal something about how things will come to pass. But before I do, I want to tell you who I am, show you who I am, and then I want you to write three parts to the letter that you are to write down. Then send this letter out to some churches. And the first part in 119, if it's in 19 and says the things that you have seen, means the first part is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, because that's what happened before 19, right? This is really high shelf stuff, okay? The point is that... Write the things you already saw before this verse. Write the vision of the Father on the throne. Write the vision of the, of the Spirit before the throne. Write the vision of the Son who is risen. Write that down. Now, that's section one. Then in chapters two and three, I want you to write seven letters to seven actual churches that actually were functioning at the time of John, and I want you to tell them about what Jesus sees when he looks at the church, and I want you to tell them what their problems are and what Jesus' prescription is, and I want you to put it in the order of the postal route of the first century. That's chapters two and three. And then in chapter four, verse one, it begins with this phrase again. Meta tells, after the things which are. And that's how you know chapters 4 through 22 are the third section of the book. Oh, if you went to chapter 4, here's what would happen. You would find that John went up into heaven and the door was open. And he walked through the door and he was in the throne room of heaven. And in this huge room, it was breathtakingly beautiful, magnificent beyond anything you've ever seen. Spielberg can't pull this off. Nobody can. There's the crystal sea, and sitting at the top of the crystal sea is the one who sits on the throne, the most magnificent, the perfect throne, the Father in heaven. And then John starts looking around. We don't know in chapter 5 who said it first. Maybe it was somebody in the third row. They said, who is worthy to open the book? Who's worthy to open the last final scroll of human history? Who's worthy to put the V end on the movie of the history of the story of God? Who can finish this? Because the rest of this book is going to tell us the things that will shortly come to pass. Who's the one who can get it going? And in chapter 4, you saw the beauty. In chapter 5, you hear sobs. Chapter 5 says that John stood there and audibly sobbed loud sobs, saying, I don't know who's worthy. Now what might surprise you in the room is that the lamb was not on the throne. The father was. The lamb was down off the edge of the crystal skirt where the four and twenty elders were, the representative believers of the different periods of time. Jesus likes hanging with believers. That's where the lamb was. I want you to imagine being in that room. 
You're in the largest stadium you have ever seen. You can't see the back. Surrounding you are people of every tribe and kindred and nation and tongue. And somebody starts the, the swell, the groundswell of worthy is the lamb, 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 worthy is the lamb. The place is thundering. You can't believe it. You can't hear yourself think. And there he comes, the one with the nail-scarred hands, the lamb of God. See, when you see that room, you'll know you're home. That's a room worth fighting over. Here's the thing. Standing right there, you'll hear these words. This is chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Revelation 5, 9, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God, and your, for, with your blood you purchased men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Did you hear that? This says that the Lamb formed a kingdom, that the Lamb gives people positions to lead worship and to rule, that the Lamb's kingdom is not just in some ethereal place in a galaxy far beyond. It's on earth. The Lamb has made a kingdom, and I belong to it, and so do you if you know him. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lamb is going to seal your destiny. If you know Jesus, he is making for you a home right now. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He promised it in John 14. Now, a few chapters later in Revelation, by the time you get to the middle of chapter 11, if you've read the book, you know there's considerable turbulence on the earth. Let's say it this way, the earth is getting pummeled. I mean, there's a tribulation that has never been seen before and will never be seen since, Jesus said. A horrifying set of things is happening. And in the middle of that, listen to the choir in heaven. This is Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, because the choir often tells you the mood in the room, okay? So here's the choir in heaven as earth is getting pummeled. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. See, once Jesus comes into the kingdom, the matter of rulership is ended forever. He goes on and says, it says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God and said, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You know what's not in heaven? A complaint department. Do you know why? When you look into the eyes of the one whose eyes are a flaming fire, you will know that he knew what he was doing. And all of a sudden, all your objections melt away. Dear brothers and sisters, when you return in the next hour outside of this room, back to the shouting and the posturing and the news, people are going to be arguing about earthly agendas of right and left and speaking about temporary rulers of a fallen world. And I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying it pales in comparison to your kingdom. If it's your highest agenda, something's off course. Look, I don't know what you think the Christian life is, but it's really this simple and this hard. It's daily 
acknowledging that Jesus died for me, and because he did, Jesus, I invite you to lead me on the dance that is today. Would you remember Jesus loves to dance, but only when he leads? And so, would you take me through the dance of this day? That invitation that happens morning after morning after morning becomes the maturing of your Christian life. And at the end of your day, trade that invitation for the inspection of how you did today. If you will do that, that simple little tip will mature you in your faith. But here's the thing. Heaven's not about gold streets. What do you need gold for? You're dead. Heaven's about unending time in the dance with Jesus. An intimate, personal experience of God that is unending. And I ask you sincerely, do you want heaven? If you want it, make sure that you're not finding it hard to spend any time with Jesus now. Because that's what it is. And ultimately, Jesus said it this way. He took the boys in Matthew 20, 18... Uh, 28, uh, 16, and through 18. And he took them in Matthew 28 to the north side of the Sea of Galilee, the Canaret, and, and, and he sat him down. Now, he had, already been, he had already been to the cross. He had already ra- been raised from the dead. He had already seen them in the upper room. Thomas has already done his little stunts. Peter's already done his lies. It's a, this has already happened. And there they are in the Galilee, and Matthew 28, 16 says... But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had told them to go to. And when they came and they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus stood up and spoke to them and he said these words, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even all the way to the the end at the end of time. I'll always be there. Did you hear what he said? He said, there is no authority on earth. There is no authority in heaven. There's no authority under the sea. There is no created place where anyone can stand against the authority of the Lamb. All authority was given by his Father to him. He alone possesses all authority. Why do I tell you that? Look, we talk, like, we talk like we're trying to fight for a victory. You fight from a victory. Jesus already won. I read the end of the book. Spoiler alert, Jesus wins. He's not on the ropes getting beat up by some academics who are saying, we don't think there's a God. We don't think there's a God. They're called fools in the Bible. Disconnected from reality. He's not going, please believe in me. He's not some dysfunctional person who needs your love. He knows that he's the highest, and if you follow anything else, you got a cheap knockoff. And so here's the bottom line. He's not begging us to choose him so that he can gain control. He's in control. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, he's not up in heaven marveling over the immorality of men going, oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. Oh, that's horrible. Listen, this ends when Jesus says, enough! And then it stops. See, our master isn't running for God. He is God. Jesus is Lord in every room, whether they acknowledge it or not. 
There's a day coming soon when the end is going to be in sight. And when trouble comes, I want you to remember this. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way. He's talking about the resurrection at the end times. And he says, each in his own order, Christ was raised first as the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ's will be raised at his coming. And then comes the end, listen, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father and he abolishes all other rule and authority and power. Jesus is going to cancel the contract of every leader in the world. And he'll still be the leader. And then it says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, the last enemy that he's going to cancel the contract on is death itself. Ladies and gentlemen, you were never meant to face death. You stand at a funeral brokenhearted because you were never meant to face that. That came because of sin, not because of your design. And Jesus is going to take you back to the original design and render inoperative the power of death and you will never say goodbye again to those that you love. I want you to think of it. Nobody's going to be able to oppose Jesus. Wall Street. <laughs> Plot for Pennsylvania Avenue. You tell me why somebody would... Spend $60 million to get a job that pays $200,000 a year. I don't know. But the plotting of Downing Street, nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't care if you're in Moscow, Beijing, Brussels. Nobody stands up to the Lamb. Nobody. When this is all said and done, every power is subjected to him right down to death itself. And by the way, do we not know that all the big white lab coats can't stop you from dying? They can't even decide what's killing you. So here's the bottom line. Jesus wins. Philippians said it this way in Philippians 2. Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow to those that are in heaven, to those that are on earth, to the whales under the sea, everything under the earth as well. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The scripture says it. Mark it down. Mohammed will bow. Buddha will bow. Presidents and kings will bow. Prime ministers and chieftains will bow. No one will strut. No one will stand. They will see the real king. Raw power of the magnificent king. You know, we, we drop balloons in a big convention, but nobody's ever seen the magnificent king in his unspeakable splendor. When you do, all the rest of it will look like plastic nonsense. Look, enough dancing around. I'm a Bible teacher. It's the only thing I know how to do. Look at the very beginning of Revelation chapter 1, because there's something there that I want you to see. Remember that what we're trying to say in a sentence is if you lose sight of heaven, you'll lose hope on earth. 
I want you to look in the throne room for a minute with me. And in, in Revelation chapter 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. He sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who rear the, read and hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Did you see it? John's claim was in verse 1, this is from God. In verse 2, that it's the word of God. In verse 3, that it's prophecy and that it demands obedience. Don't miss that he also called himself a bondservant. He was enabled to see and report on what was going on there from his sin-torn life because he gave his life to Jesus. And that's what makes the difference. Ladies and gentlemen, there is only one effective detergent against sin, and that is the blood of Jesus. And without it, no amount of work will get you in the door. But here's the truth. If you miss everything else, don't miss what follows. Because the next verse continues, John to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Did you see it? The Bible often, when it gives you a picture of God, gives you one God in three distinct personalities. You, you see it in the uh, baptism of Jesus. Jesus is standing there in the water as the Son. And the Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son. And the Spirit descends like a dove on him. You see all three acting independently, but in concert as a single being. So here, when you look into the throne room, you see the words, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come. There's a, an acronym that we use for God. God has many titles in Scripture, but only one name. And his name is actually an acronym, like IBM, International Business Machine. It's, a, it's an acronym. And the acronym is for this phrase that we just read, Asher Hayah Vehoveh Veyavo. It is the one who was, who is, who is to come. Now, what does that mean? Because it sounds like lawyer language. What it means is, I'm always there. God is never late. He was there before you. He'll be there after you. And you've never been there because there isn't there if God isn't there. I define reality. Wherever, wherever is, I am. And that's his name. I'm always here. I'm always right on. I'm never late. You never have to go, God, where are you? I've always, always been there. I had the solution before you had the question. That's your God, but that's not the only thing. Did you, did you read what else is there? It says, and before him were the seven spirits before his throne. Now, that really messes up Trinity triangles, but nevertheless, the spirit of God is not one. It's seven, a complete spirit. And listen to who that spirit is, because Isaiah 11 gives you, verse 2, all of the people that are the Spirit of God, all the character traits. Isaiah 11, 2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. There are seven descriptors given of him. Did you see them? L listen, when you see the seven spirits before the throne, listen to what they are. 
God the Spirit that was planted in you at your salvation, God the Spirit that is in this room right now drawing us together in worship, God the Spirit that is alive today and pulling God's church is the Spirit of Yahweh. He's the Spirit that's always on time, as we said. But He's also the Spirit of Chokhmah. Chokhmah is wisdom. It's practical planning. So the Spirit of, uh, of God is also the Spirit of Binah, the Spirit of piercing discernment. See, God's spirit is never bumbuzzled by the light. God's spirit is the spirit of Eitzal, the spirit of strategic thinking. God's spirit is the spirit of Geburah. He's the spirit of courage and of might. God's spirit is the spirit of Da'at. That's the spirit of skillful knowledge. God's spirit is the spirit of Yirah, which is awesome, majestic presence and reverence for God. If you don't know what to do next, you have the Spirit of God to give you practical, strategic planning that goes beyond your own ability. I've been a part of the church since I was a young person, which means a long time ago. And here's what I can tell you. We'll foul up a two-car parade. We don't know how to do anything. If God's Spirit wasn't here, we'd be stuck in the mud. And here's the truth. You get into the fog of all the advice people are giving you and God's spirit will allow you to have eyes that pierce through it and show you the truth when it's hard to see. If you get in the middle of fear that paralyzes you, God will give you the courage through his spirit. If you are confused, he will offer you strategy by his spirit. If you are overwhelmed with intimidation, he will give you unlearned skills. He can train your tongue to say words you never heard come out of your mouth. And as they come out, you'll go, boy, that's good. Where'd I get that? I love the description that, 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 that the Father is timeless, and I love the description that the Spirit gives me practical help because I don't know about you, but I need help. I can't figure out. We got all kinds of information. We just don't have a lot of truth right now. I got all kinds of things coming at me, but I don't know which of those people know what they're talking about. So here's the truth. When I get to heaven... I'm not saying I won't want to see the Father on the throne. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't love seeing the seven spirits around the throne. I think that's cool. I really do. But can I tell you who I really want to see in heaven? I want to see the one who bought me. I want to see the one whose nail-scarred hands paid for the price so that I could be. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Don't you? And, and here's the thing. That's why I love verse 5, because it tells me about Jesus. It says, this, this letter is also written from Jesus Christ. Listen to the description. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, released us from our sins by his blood. He made us to be a kingdom priest to, God, to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. See, there's, there's no one other than the Son himself, the Lamb of God, and look at how he's depicted there. Did you know that Jesus is your faithful witness? Now, guys, that means he knows everything about you, everything. And here's the mystery. He still loves you anyway. And here's the thing I want you to know. You don't have any skeletons in your closet. I mean, trying to hide something from an omniscient being is just dumb. You look like an idiot. 
Here's the reality. He knows everything about you on the sub-microatomic level. How in the world is that even possible? He made you. And so what I want you to understand is that when you cry out with all of your flaws and all of your faults, the, and, 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 and the enemy is right off of stage right, just off the stage saying, don't listen to him, he's a filthy sinner. Jesus is going to say, wait a minute, Father, 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 this is one of mine. Listen to him. He's your faithful witness. He intercedes on your behalf. It's not because you're so good. It's because you're not, and he is. But you get heard. Not only that, he, he's, he's, he's this one who is the firstborn from the dead. You know what that means? That means in resurrection terminology, he's the first one who walked back out that stayed alive. You say, but Lazarus was raised. Yeah, but he died again. He's the first one who got up and never got down again. But it's not only that, firstborn is also, he has the rights of the firstborn, the double portion of the inheritance. He's the absolute image of the father. He's, he is in every way the father's recipient of the full will of all property. He is the one, uniquely privileged, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, when every court in our land is silent, when every legislature is empty, when every hall of power has ceased, Jesus will reign supreme as king above all. But before we're done, don't miss verse 7. Because before you walk out of here, I need to give you this piece of hope. Verse 7 says it this way. Just in case you missed it, behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. CNN will run it. They'll hate it, but they'll run it. Even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth, you'd think they'd shout, hallelujah, oh no, they will mourn over him. Why? Because all the partisanship and political posturing will be over, and they'll recognize there's one single standard of truth, and that what Jesus said was true all along, and he was exactly who he said he was. Scripture says, so it is to be, amen. Now listen to what Jesus says. He makes an entrance and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Did you see that? Jesus comes and he's our rescuer. Now, here's the bottom line. Jesus loves you. It's not just a children's song. He really does. And, and here's the truth. Jesus wants a relationship with you because Jesus came to rescue you. But not only that, he's the one who made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He made us into a people. Everyone in this room, regardless of whether you came in red and blue, if you know Jesus, you are purple. The other designation will pale in comparison. 100 million million years from now, you won't care what you were here or what the color of the sign on your front porch was. So here's what I know. He's the worthy one. That's the one every knee will bow to. He's the returning one. He's coming back. And then John says that Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega. This is not a grammar lesson. It's not like a little Greek curiosity of the alphabet. Jesus is trying to say something. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, John chapter 1 said everything was made by the one who came and tented with us, Jesus. That means when Jesus spoke the first word, the first thing was created. He spoke and there is light. He hurled 
one quintillion stars into the heavens and they were as you see them today. And here's what I'm telling you. He's not only the alpha, the first word. He's the one that will put the the end at the end of the human history movie. And it's signed in his blood. And here's what I know. God said the prophets spoke of Jesus. God said he would set him on David's throne. God said he woke him up on the third day to walk out of the tomb. God said he ranked him above every name that is named. And Jesus, in response, showed his love and set us free. And Jesus installed us as intercessors. And Jesus promised to come back. The one who started the clock of human history will be the final one to get the last word. Jesus himself. And if I understand scripture right, I see the power, the promise, the majesty. But before we go, I got to tell you there's a problem. When you're getting beat up, guys, I work in international travel. The synonym for that is dead. I've watched my entire industry melt into slag. I am either the busiest person you know for the next two years or I have nothing on my calendar and I don't know. It's up to a group of people I don't know looking at facts they've never seen. Other than that, it's rock solid. Okay? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. When you're going through turbulence, it's hard to remember the picture of where you're going. But I want to take you to one last scene before we leave. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. In John 18, they swept down on him. The boys were praying, mostly sleeping, supposed to be praying. Off they take Jesus, and the next time they see him, some of them see him coming out of the praetorium after he's been handed back between Herod Antipas and Pilate. He's been badly beaten. He's been up all night. Part of his beard is plucked out. He has a crown of thorns pressed into his brow, and he's been beaten so badly you can't tell that's who he is. When Pilate comes out with his Roman arrogance, behold the man! They bring a broken visage of Jesus. Horrified, his followers are standing there. They can't believe what they see. Jesus is dragged through the street with the cross beam of the cross until he can carry it no more, and Simon the Cyrene is compelled to carry it the rest of the way. At least John, maybe others, were there when he was crucified, and what we know for sure is he cried out in agony as they drove the nails in his hands and feet. And those men that had trusted in him as Messiah and trusted in him for hope were broken because their hope died when they forgot heaven's voice. This is my son. Now, it wouldn't stay that way, would it? You ever think about what the crowd and even the disciples forgot that Friday? The pain of the disciples was so great that they forgot the power that caused the blind man at Siloam to see. They forgot the power that, that, that caused the layman at Bethesda to get up and take up his bed and walk. They forgot the power that literally fed thousands from a little boy's lunchbox on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. That They forgot the power that caused the, uh, Elijah and Moses to come back from the dead on the Mount of Transfiguration. They forgot the power that caused the limp and lifeless body of Lazarus to come forth when Jesus called him. They forgot all that because he was dead. But it didn't stay that way. 
I know he rose from the grave, and I don't know he rose from the grave merely because the tomb was empty. There are a lot of ways to empty a tomb. Listen to what happened to those men as we close. It began with Stephen, who Paul, before he was one of us, had stoned beyond the gate of Jerusalem. James was next, killed for the preaching of salvation through the cross of Christ. Matthias was tied to a cross and draped with carrion and eaten by vultures. Jude Thaddeus was crucified, then shot to death with arrows. Nathaniel was skinned alive and crucified in double agony. Philip was hanged from a column near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Andrew was crucified in Egypt. Matthew was beheaded in Alexandria. John Mark was dragged to death behind a chariot. And James Alpheus was thrown to his death from the roof of Herod's palace. Thomas was speared to death by a mob. Simon the Zealot was sawed into pieces while alive. Peter and Paul were taken by Roman authorities in Rome. Paul was beheaded along a main shopping district at the liminal edge of Rome. Shortly later, Peter, according to one of our early church sources, they said that he was forced to watch his beloved wife crucified before him. As he called to her, remember Christ, remember Christ. Peter felt he was unworthy to be crucified as the Lord and said, put me head down on the cross. And that made him suffer many times longer. Beloved, if someone comes to you and says, I'll believe in your Jesus, show proof. Don't show them an empty tomb. You show them these men. You show them these men who lost everything, had nothing to gain, everything to lose, but they would not cease to give the truth of the triumphal risen Christ even from some of their own crosses. Listen, if I didn't see him raised and you're going to sole me in half, I'm going to go, sorry, just kidding. But if I saw him and I knew that a moment after I leave this body, I will be present with the king, what can I say? What can I say? But he's alive and he's coming back and he is. Oh, beloved, behold your king. Know this. Trouble's coming, but so is Jesus. And when the trouble gets here, just remember, Go all the way to the end of the story. Jesus wins. Father, we call on you this morning because we do not have hope apart from heaven. We can't fix the system. We can't even figure out what's making us sick. We we can't somehow come back with some great new moral revival based on the goodness of men. (laughs) It's pretty clear to us men aren't all that good. The smartest classrooms of the 20th century led to the rise of Adolf Hitler. The smartest classrooms of the 21st century seem to be leading us right in the same direction. And if I didn't have the king, I would panic. But I will not panic, for my king stands above all. We rise to speak your name, Lord Jesus, you are our king. And we will serve none before we serve you first. We'll be responsible citizens, we'll pull the lever, we'll vote. But we won't get nasty. We won't sling mud. We won't harm each other in the process. Because it's just not worth it for a temporal ruler of a fallen kingdom. In Jesus' name.